Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the show Q with Tom Power. Uh, on the show, we talk to all kinds of uh, actors, writers, painters. I mean, big names you might have heard of. Like we had James L. Brooks talking about The Simpsons, Jada Pinkett Smith talking about Tupac. And on our show, artists go a little deeper than they might go elsewhere. I mean, the guys from Blue Rodeo kind of said that. We only talk about our relationship when we come on this show. <laughs> and we've done it damagingly and we've done it positively. <laughs> Listen to Q with Tom Power wherever you get your podcasts. And in Miss Rossi's class, you were allowed to say anything. And that's really unusual, I think, first of all, at that level. There was something that made me feel like an adult for real in that class. Treating adolescents like adults the way that Miss Rossi did and acknowledging where they were biologically, physically, emotionally really set you up for success. There's a reason that she has all these magical accolades. She changed a lot of lives. This is Arts Educators Save the World, where successful artists and their mentors talk about how arts education transformed their lives. Hey, welcome, welcome. So far on this show, we have talked with mentors whose work is in the arts. And that makes sense that when you ask successful artists who inspired them, that they would identify their music teachers or their ceramics instructor from the community program they grew up in. But when we invited the artists on today's show, star of stage and screen, Annalie Ashford, to join us and asked her who her most inspiring mentor had been, she went immediately to her high school social studies teacher. I am super excited for this because I think all of you will connect with this form of inspiration and mentorship because you are either teachers yourselves or you are current or former students who have been inspired by one or several of your classroom teachers. And Alec, I hear tell that you have a story about an inspiring social studies teacher. I do. My teacher, uh, Miss Abamonti, who you will remember from back in our day, we had her her first year that she was teaching at our school. I actually had her for seventh, eighth, and 10th grade social studies history, and she was tough. She was very serious. I realize now she was, I think, about 24, but she didn't seem that way to us at the time. But she affected the way that I did my work and my schoolwork for the rest of my academic career, but also she did something very technical that I took right into my script writing as soon as I started doing that. When we were writing research papers, we had to use index cards in a very specific way. You had to put the subject matter at a certain part of the card, the reference at a certain part. If you were going to use an actual quote, you had to use quotation marks on the card. But if you weren't, you had to rewrite it right then and there to make sure that you weren't going to be plagiarizing lazily later. The point was that the system, the structure could be such that if you stick to it, the creative side can kind of flow. You don't have to worry about how am I going to do this process of research, of writing, of creating. You kind of get that locked in, which opens the mind up on the creative side. She was very tough. She was very serious. I used to refer to having her as the three tours of duty I did with Miss Abamonti, but it affected me to this day. And years later, decades later, when I was in the building, I did find her and I did thank her for, for all that she had done. 
That is not only a great story, but I think super relatable for anyone who's been inspired by some of the specific practices of a teacher. And I think we'll hear a lot of that in the conversation between Anna Lee and her high school social studies teacher. I want to jump right in, but before we get started, a little bit of podcasty housekeeping. First, Anna Lee talks about wanting to move to New York in the episode. For context, Anna Lee is from Colorado, which is where our story takes place. Second, just like our conversation with Miss Ames, Anna Lee was really nervous about using her teacher's first name, though we had never met her before, so we are totally okay with it. As a result, in order to not confuse you, our brilliant guest today is named Steffi Rossi. Onward together. I'm going to introduce our first guest this week, who is the lovely and talented Annalie Ashford. She's an actress, singer, dancer, and very prolific Instagrammer. You've seen her on television, on Masters of Sex, in my favorite of her performances as Paula Jones in Impeachment American Crime Story, and as Gina Dabrowski on CBS's Be Positive. She appeared in Bad Education with Allison Janney and Hugh Jackman. And on Broadway, Annalie played Lauren in Kinky Boots, starred in Sunday in the Park with George with Jake mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal, and won a Tony Award as Essie Carmichael in You Can't Take It With You. She is the daughter of a teacher and an advocate for the transformative benefits of arts education. Annalie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am delighted. Yay, I am delighted to have you here in conversation with us. I'm hoping that you will then take the mic and introduce our other guest for the day. Yes, I'm so excited. I get to read an intro now. It's so exciting. (laughs) We have joining us my very special teacher, and now I get to call her my friend, sweet, sweet Miss Rossi. She came into the world knowing that she wanted to be a teacher, which I think is really special and magical, and was fortunate to have inspirational teachers along the way that helped her understand why this became a calling for her. Her first job was teaching the Russian language and American and Colorado history at Carmody Middle School in Lakewood, Colorado. That was August 1980, which is amazing. She spent 14 years at that middle school and developed a leadership class for teenagers and also created a restorative justice program at the school. And in 1992, developed a month-long series of diversity workshops, 1992 people, where she invited all walks of life. P-Flag, Grey Panthers, Native American tribal members, religious atheists, you name it. She invited them to help students understand that they all belong and must learn how to use their voice. She then transferred to Wheat Ridge High School, which is where I went. She continued teaching social studies topics, American government, geography, and American history. She also developed an indigenous people's course for students and had a collective of women, as these adolescent girls called themselves, to write an American history book form, The Perspective of Women. Congressman Ed Perlmutter presented her with the Heroes Award in May 2020 when she retired. And this might sound cliche, but she always says that she had the best job in the world. Yep. <laughs> but man, talk about a bio. Miss Rossi, come to the stage. Yeah, <laughs> come through. Okay, wait, I have to ask you both. Wheat Ridge High School, go farmers. 
Can you believe Farmers. it? Farmers. Farmers. <laughs> Shocking, right? I'm loving it. I am loving it so much. We've already started figuring out that you both have similar memories, but I'm hoping that you'll start by telling me and telling each other the first time you remember working together. Mm-hmm. Steffi, what's the first thing you remember about working with Anna Lee? She was focused. And she was on a track that was different than any other student I'd ever had and that she knew what she wanted to do. And so high school was a place for her, but it was going to be the beginning of many steps. She understood very early that she had to get out of there earlier rather than later, not because it was a bad experience, but because she knew where she was going. It's rare that you meet someone as a youngster, as a young adolescent that has that focus and drive but not to the point where she's going to dismiss or miss out on the high school experience. She was present, she was engaged, but she was focused. And that was a talent you don't normally see in adolescence. They're all over the place and they're disjointed and they're emotionally up and down. And Annalie was always focused on what she wanted to do while at the same time she was there with us. So she wasn't absent of mind, she was present, she was engaged. And she participated in the journey that high school represented for her, even though it was abbreviated. She made her presence known to all of us. And so one of the things that I would compare her to, she's like a sponge. She's in a moment. She's in a place. She takes everything she can from that moment because she knows she's going to use it somewhere else. So it's not an experience that we should shorten or abbreviate or miss out on. I must engage and be present And then I will launch myself as I do. And that's what she did. And she was very, the word mature describes her, but it also is a bit incomplete because she was captivated by what she was doing. You know, you hear that phrase, old soul. She was an old soul, but she was had young desire that she was going to pursue and capture these moments because those became foundational elements that she would use as she went off to college. I mean, she graduated at 16, Launching somebody into the world at 16, you've got to give them a set of skills. This might happen, this might happen. But she was open to all of that. She was a blessing. Oh, Miss Rossi, I bow at your feet. Oh, it's so good to be with you. (laughs) The sweetest. Many of my favorite educators are people that I heard about their class. I saw them from afar and said, I want to learn from that person. The same thing happened later in college for me. There was a couple of professors that I didn't get to take their acting class. And so I said, can I sit in? And with Miss Rossi, I didn't get to take all of the classes that she taught. I would have taken every, I would have just been in her class all day if you would have let me. She was like a legend. I heard about her in junior high. I was like, well, you better make sure that you get Miss Rossi. Like you do everything you possibly can to get Miss Rossi. And I always remember that kids who sometimes had a harder time getting their papers in and didn't particularly love the activity of school. If they took Miss Rossi's class, they showed up. If they took Miss Rossi's class, they did their work. I remember too, I had a friend who like really found ways to call out, not go to school. What do you call that when you ditch? Ditch? Yeah, I guess you call it ditching. Yeah, they ditch mm-hmm. class. But people would be like, oh, I'm ditching today, but I have to go to fourth period because I have Miss Rossi's class. <laughs> she had sort of this amazing reputation. And then also, I found myself having, I didn't have her as a counselor, but she was such a blessing to me in the way of a counselor outside of my class with her. And even though I didn't have her for an arts education class, I took her psychology class. I 
found her to be instrumental in my support and my growth as an artist. And also those big life choices that you make when you're transitioning from high school to life after high school and your journey. And she was so supportive and so loving. I'm so grateful to her as an artist. As Ms. Rossi said, I graduated early from high school. I chose to graduate a year early, which at the time, online courses were just beginning. I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to be in New York and New York was such a scary place for me. So I was trying to figure out a way to go to college in New York. The idea of graduating early was not always supported because as Ms. Rossi said, for most people, they need that extra year before they dive into the world. And Miss Rossi was overwhelmingly supportive of the journey that I was intending to embark on and so loving and kind. And I also think really could see clearly the lens of the artist in a way that was unique and special, partly because she looks at each student as uniquely human to whoever they are. Everybody's different, but also because she is a creative spirit herself. She is so imaginative and delightfully creative in her teaching. I mean, she can talk about some of the magic things that she does, but I I remember her coming in with all sorts of props, lots of props in class. Mm -hmm. Yep. She'd squirt people with a squirt gun if they fell asleep. (laughs) On history days, there was crowns and scepters involved. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. I didn't get to have history with her. All these other people got to see her put on a show. There was just a massive creative spirit involved at every turn. Steffi, can you talk a little more about some of those creative choices? Sure. What are some of your favorites and why did you make those choices? Well, if you say the word history to most people, they fall asleep (laughs) because you're talking about dead people. And so how do you bring dead people back to life? I've always believed history is a collection of stories about what people did in different times that we weren't there, but why did they do what they did and what motivated them and why did they choose to get involved and why did they make this choice and that choice? So my responsibility was to make history come alive. I would tell stories. In fact, people call it lecturing. I call it storytelling. Let's, we're going to start with a story. And I would bring really odd stories into the mix. You know, what what would the Puritans do to women? And not stuff that was in the history book. I would always go find those anecdotes that aren't in the history books because they reveal the complexity of the human being in different times of their lives. Those are far more interesting. When I grew up in history, it was all about wars. And that was such a narrow focus. There were so many other elements, the social aspects, the challenges. And so when I told a story, I would bring in props. One of the things that I did for, it's called the uh, Spanish-American War, but it's called the era of colonialism when America becomes a world power. And I would put on a crown and I'd have a cape and I'd have a scepter and I would march across the top of my desks to show that I was island hopping as I would acquire islands from the Spanish-American War. I would look down at the students because I was bigger than they were and I was better because I was the big America coming into Guam and Puerto Rico and the Philippines, and I was going to make them part of America. And so I would come into these settings and I would ask if anybody would like to join me. I had a Star Wars, um, one of those guns that would light up and I would point it, would you like to join me? And they would say, no, we want our independence. And then I would put this right next to their, the gun right next to their nut. And I said, would you like to join me now? And they said, absolutely, we would love to join you. (laughs) And so we talked about how did America go from a country that desired independence and freedom 
from a colonizing power become a colonizer in a little over 100 years? And what was that really about? What was that conversation really about? And so we would do those kinds of activities to help kids understand what those decisions meant to people on the island and people that were arriving on the island, the various perspectives. And so I would do that and march across the desks. It was tricky as I got older. <laughs> so I would, I would find students that would help me but I always marched across the desks. Another big project that I loved to do was the Great Depression. And the Great Depression, we created a body. America was a body. And so the kids had to come up with metaphors that represented what that body was. And so the stock market crash was a, they would like have a body that would blow their knee out because it decimated things. So I did a lot of metaphorical comparisons with the Great Depression and the body so kids could understand what it was. Because if you just talk about the economy crashed, well, what does that mean? Nothing to 14 and 15 and 16 year olds, they don't know. So you have to give them something to connect their story to so they would make these wonderful projects. And finding ways to use the kids' talents and their creative expression to tell stories. They were now telling stories. And they understood that history isn't a story about a bunch of dead people. It's a story about people making decisions in different times and why they did. And then how is it connected to who you are today? What role do you have in going into your world? I come from a tradition in Judaism. It's called tikkun olam. You have a responsibility to make the world a better place as a result of you being there. So I would impart that to the students. What are you going to do now? Where are you going to go? How are you going to impact someone else? That to me is the magic of teaching. Can I take your class? Is it too late? I'm 47, but I feel like I can still <laughs> stop by. I do an adult American history class. I do. I have one. I will let you know, Alec, when I do it again. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> I mean, I told you guys, she's magical, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had psychology with Miss Rossi, and I always felt like when I came in the room, like everybody, I felt like I was at home. The same way that I think most theater kids feel when they walk into the room at a theater class or, uh, you know, a choir class. This was something special. This was a place where magic was made. This is a place where creativity was number one and human connection was number one. Storytelling mm -hmm. was number one. People ask me, why are you an actor? And I always say, because I love stories and I love to tell stories. And I think that stories can make the world better and, and change us and make us better people. And so obviously, as you've heard, that was Miss Rossi's class. And also I took psychology and Miss Rossi can talk about it a little bit more, but I remember it being such a safe space right before you finished school in that really complicated, uncomfortable time where you're at the top of the totem pole, but you know you're about to be at the very, very bottom of the totem pole of life as an adult. This class, I think, helped a lot of kids navigate those feelings navigate the distance that they were possibly feeling from their parents. You know, a lot of kids when they're about to graduate, their parents either hang on too tight or they let go in a way that feels even harder. And then for me personally, again, I was sort of in this space and place where I was getting lots of advice, people sort of out of their own fear. They didn't want me to graduate early. They didn't want me to leave. They thought this was a crazy thing I was doing. And I just always felt like with Miss Rossi, she really saw me for who I was as a human and saw my drive and saw my focus, all those things. She said it was an overwhelming blessing for me to be seen in that moment. And also to be really, truly supported for the first time from somebody other than my family in a different space other than the arts, really to be supported by somebody who was like, yes, go, go fly, spread your wings and jump. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, Miss Rossi can talk about that psychology class way better than me. <laughs> do it. Oh, yeah. Do, do it. it. Okay. Well, it's just the study of human behavior. Why do we do what we do? And how do we create these decisions about what we do? And you can get into the biology of it, which I do. But the thing I like about a psychology class is that it, I always called it the launching into adulthood class because most of the kids that take it are seniors. I have a few juniors that would take it. But they're very excited and they're terrified at the same time. And what does this mean to be an adult? They even have adulting classes now, which I think are fabulous. (laughs) That's the class with you I want to take. Alec (laughs) wants your history class. I'll take the adulting class. (laughs) I don't want that one. I don't know if I figured that one out yet. (laughs) But just to explore a couple of ideas about what does it mean when you launch yourself into the world? One of the reasons I love to teach adolescents is because they're curious and they're frightened. They're really brave, but they're terrified. So it's this wonderful mix of emotions. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of adolescence and what's going on with adolescence biologically. And so you teach them how to kind of understand who they are. Don't panic. And I think there needs to be more emphasis that adolescence is supposed to be a journey of struggles. It's supposed to be hard. You're testing your emotional muscles. You're testing out whether they're there. Have you trained them enough? Have you engaged in some good emotional workouts, good crying sessions, good total loss of everything I know about me is to be true is gone. And then on the other side, you have a conversation with them. Well, what did you learn? What are you going to take with you? What are you going to discard? What muscles are stronger? I think that's such a great message to send kids as they go through adolescence, through psychology. You can do this. It's going to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. You can get through this. That's how we get wisdom from challenging who we are and emotionally pushing ourselves. So I'll be here. I'll hold your hand. I'll help you get there. But I'm not going to overly protect and overly cushion you because ultimately that's an insult to your ability to do what you must do. So I'm an ally with you. I'm not your adversary. I'll hold your hand. I'll have Kleenex if you cry. I'll make you laugh. But in the end, I have to send you the messages that you can do this, despite all that you're traveling. I don't know. In the world today, there's a lot of overprotection of children, for me, from my perspective. Rather than overprotecting them, let's teach them how to travel those roads, because we believe they can rather than, ooh, I must keep you on a leash. I got to keep you close. I'm going to help you make decisions. I want you to make the decisions. I really want you to screw up. I always believed it was good for kids to screw up while they were home with me, whether it was my students or my own children, because I want to give them the advice. I want them to talk to me. I've had too many students tell me, I had one girl one year tell me that if you French kiss somebody, you get pregnant. I'm like, oh my God, Uh, let's talk about why that's not true. So I want kids screwing up. I want them to test that metal that's within them. And so psychology provides that because you get to look at theories about why they do what they do and why struggle is part of growing up. All the theorists about this behavior, that behavior, whether it's Freud or Erickson or Piaget, you get to look at all of that stuff and you give them some tools to understand the journey that they're on as adolescents, but also what's going to happen when they go into the world. Absolutely. And also speaking of that time, when you're in ad- in that period of adolescence, especially during that era, you know, it was like the late 90s, early 2000s, you really were defined by what your activity is, what you did. And so I was an actor and singer, so I was defined by that. And I remember in that class really being confronted and really supported by Miss Rossi 
by the acknowledgement that that's not all that I was, you know, that's not what made me me. That's just a piece of me. And that's an outrageously important lesson for those of us in the arts, especially people who are choosing to be in the acting side of this career, because you are the instrument and the career is so emotionally dysfunctional. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you're constantly being told you're not good enough, really. And so if you don't know how to navigate those feelings, and if you don't know how to separate yourself from what you do, then it's going to be a much more fraught life and livelihood. I can have this be a piece of me, but it's not my whole soul. You know, my soul goes like this mm. and, and my talent is just a piece of it and a thread of it. And it's also not mine. It's from the divine spark, which I'm going mm-hmm. like even deeper. And in Miss Rossi's class, you were allowed to say anything. And that's really unusual, I think, too. At First of all, at that level, there was something that made me feel like an adult for real in that class. And I always used to say to myself, well, ugh, this is what college is going to be like. And I wish it had been more like that, you know, (laughs) but treating adolescents like adults the way that Miss Rossi did and acknowledging where they were biologically, physically, emotionally really set you up for success. There's a reason that she has all these magical accolades. She changed a lot of lives and she changed a lot of people's view on the world, which is also really a tightrope walk as a teacher, especially a public school teacher. There's limits to what you can cover in class and she was able to challenge the world and still do it in those confines. It's really special. And again, so creative. <laughs> she didn't teach traditionally arts classes, but I think she was the most creative teacher I've ever had. And, and I think you mentioned it too. This was a public school, right? I think sometimes we get the idea, I hear all the time, oh, so easy to say you had this magical teacher. You worked at this precious special place where people could do what they wanted. But to be a teacher in a public education system is not easy. And actually, if it's all right, I want to go back to one other topic that we mentioned in the intro but haven't really talked about. And then, Miss Rossi, you're going to get a chance to ask Annalise some questions. (laughs) But before all that, we're going to step away again from our conversation to let Erica switch from her Terry Gross costume into her author professor gear. I am very skilled at quick changes. Excellent. To relate Annalie and Miss Rossi's experiences to some of what Erica discusses in her book, How the Arts Can Save Education. Okay, so you and Miss Rossi both make the point that arts education isn't just for artists. That's very much the point of, of much of the book. Can you talk about some of the ways that classroom teachers can use the arts in their work? I've been thinking about this in two ways, and Miss Rossi highlights actually both of them. Two ways that we can think about how the arts can be a regular part of classroom teaching. One is to bring arts practices themselves into teaching. So improvisation, as we've already talked about, is a core part of how I understand what makes good teaching practice. Taking the features of improvisation as an art form and applying them directly to teaching. And there are other tools. Art critique, for example, performance, are both forms of assessment that we use in arts practice that can translate directly into the classroom. And the other, which Ms. Rossi talks about extensively, is to make the connection from practices that teachers do as a regular part of their classroom. 
Ms. Rossi, for example, talks a lot about storytelling as a core mechanism for teaching. Another one I think a lot about is representation. Stay with me for a minute. So in arts practice, the core mechanism of making is representation. It means taking an idea, a concept, a story, and translating it using the tools of the art form in order to create something new that communicates that idea. So in a film, the tools of representation are the camera, the music, the sound, the cinematography, the script. In ceramics, the tools of representation are the clay, the colors, the shape. And in any discipline area, understanding how the tools of your medium allow you to represent ideas is what we're going for in the classroom. So in a math class, for example, the tools for representation are numbers and equations and diagrams. And the goal of math learning is to take an abstract idea and re-represent it using the tools of mathematics. And so understanding that what we're after in all learning is representation allows classroom teachers to map the practices of arts teaching directly on to the practices of their classroom. As we get back into the interview, I want to share a little bit of an email that Ms. Rossi sent me right after we finished talking about the role of the arts in teaching. She says, the art of teaching for me has always been finding a way to connect the significance of what the learning within a lesson was and then helping students believe they too can find the connection to their own lives. If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you were doing restorative justice before it was a thing. You were also acknowledging the sovereignty and depth of indigenous peoples before that was a thing. And you were calling women WMYN before that was a thing. And I mention all of that because the culturally sustaining practices that are involved in acknowledging the sovereignty and depth of groups' experiences with issues like race and culture and history is another core value of arts practice. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a little about your experiences leaning in to social and racial justice as an educator, particularly in the early 1990s before there were supports for that. So the divine spark is Annalie calls it, is what motivated me to create a space where everybody can be who they are and believe what they believe, but they don't get to shame or marginalize somebody else. As a society, we have to learn to engage with people we don't understand, not minimize them, not put them in a box, not put them in a party. Whatever we do, the danger of that is that we lose our humanity. That awareness guided my instruction for my entire career. And it, it matured as I matured and understood it even more and more and more. 
I had a group of kids that came to me and asked me to run the Brown Power Club at Wheat Ridge. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm not brown. And they go, oh, but you act like you are. (laughs) And so I thought that was so interesting. They gave me a little bandana that I wore on my arm. All they wanted to do was have a safe space to talk about what it felt like to be brown in a white, largely white school in suburbia. We can create those spaces if we, and I, I operate with this principle, I don't have to make you wrong in order to make me right. And difference is not synonymous with deficient. And so those two ethics kind of shape what I do as an educator, what I do as a human being, because I want kids to always feel safe in my classroom. I want them to feel safe enough to say who they voted for. I want them mm. to safe enough to not worry about who I voted for. I always, when kids ask, they always ask you, do you do drugs? Did you blah, 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 all those silly questions. And I just would say, when you can tell me what my past has to do with your present, I'll answer your question, but not until then. And then they were stumped because they're like, oh, what does that mean? And I'm like, <laughs> figure it out, come back to me. I'll always tell you the truth, but I'm not going to just give you these glory moments because you think that would make me cool. That doesn't work. And so it's the awareness that you're teaching a curriculum. I always said, I don't teach American history. I teach students. They just happen to be learning about American history. I just think there's a difference. You're teaching human beings in front of you. Navigating the difficult topics, I always felt protected, that I was doing the right thing and I would be okay. Even when parents told me that, when I brought PFLAG into a middle school, they told me I went through all the proper procedures and everything, and you had to have a parent permission slip. And one mom came up to me and she said, you talked to the wrong parents because you got permission to do this. And I go, you get to parent your kid. You don't get to parent everybody's kid in this building. Parents get to decide what's best for their kids. She didn't like that. And I'm, that's okay. She didn't have to. But I have a responsibility to these people as they go into the world, how they navigate the world. It's not whether they believe this or that or whatever. It's how do they understand each other as they go into the world. And so that's what kept me safe, bringing all these topics up, whether it was Columbus Day. I was arrested for blocking the Columbus Day Parade in Denver, and I was getting on the police bus, and one kid goes, Miss Rossi, and I turned around with my handcuffs, and he took my picture, and I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) And so how do you manage that? Because I don't want to glorify getting arrested, but I want to glorify standing up and doing what's right. Follow-up question, does that photo exist somewhere? I don't know. I've never, I saw it once. (laughs) And I probably grabbed it and threw it away, but because I was terrified. But teaching was a calling. There was more to it than the subject matter for me. I also, I'm really happy we're talking to Ms. Rossi too today, because I know you guys are going to talk to so many arts teachers. And I think it's really inspiring to talk to a teacher who doesn't have that subject to teach, but has brought so many of those values of storytelling and how storytelling teaches us to love one another and be better humans and how to understand each other. All of sort of the tenets of the performing arts that we live by. Somebody like Miss mm-hmm. Rossi is also living by those principles in, in the teaching of her subjects. Hey, Miss Rossi, I actually have a question for you. Yeah. I know that this last couple of years, you knew that it was going to be your farewell to the classroom, but it happened to also align with sort of the most contentious social and political time of obviously my lifetime Mm -hmm. and probably your time teaching most likely. Mm -hmm. What was it like to teach in that environment, especially at the high school level? Well, with social media too. There was so many weird mixes because it was my last year. So I wanted it to be my year of last. And I was a little bit sad that I'm ending my career in my kitchen, my kitchen counter like this. And one of my former students, you remember her name's Melanie Adams now. I called her 
And I said, you know, I'm kind of sad that I'm not going to be my last day in my classroom and the last this, the last that. And she said, well, you're not supposed to go out like everybody else. You're Miss Rossi. You have to have a historical event that ushers you out of the classroom. And that helped me. And that's what I want to also emphasize is my students help me grow. Annalie, what's one learning or piece of advice or idea that you got from Miss Rossi that you, it's funny, you said that you can't take it with you, that you have taken <laughs> with you? I hear you both even talking in shared language which is pretty amazing for how long ago you heard Miss Rossi's voice in your head on a daily basis that that language still lives inside of you. But I don't know, give us one thing that you're like, oh, this is something Miss Rossi said or did that sort of lives with me. On a personal level, one of the things that I'll always remember that she shared with me in that, that class that we took, at one point we'd do like a collage of our past and kind of look at our past. And I remember so much of it was so heavily focused on my life as a performing artist. And it was just a nugget of wisdom that she dropped into me that day that she was like, you're so much more than these pictures. There's a lot more than just this stuff. That was such a helpful seed that needed to be planted for me as an artist, especially young artists. It's our whole life. So that's all we have. And that's our whole identity. Having that seed be planted has helped me so much as a daughter, as a wife, and now especially as a mom. It's helped me balance my life as an artist because it can't be your whole life. You're a better artist when you have a more full life. Well, Annalie, tell us um, what you're working on now that focuses on arts education or the arts in education or kind of practically how you're thinking about moving these ideas forward. You know, I've always believed that as Miss Rossi said, some people really have a calling for teaching. Some people really have the spirit of the teacher. You know, when you take a bunch of those personality tests, teaching is one of the pieces of that. And for me, it always pops up. And I've always had that as a part of my spirit. My mom's a teacher. She's an elementary school gym teacher in the same county as Miss Rossi. Mm-hmm. They're both in Jeffco County. I always find that anytime I do a talk back, It's very important that I'm really clear about my language and I'm really clear about some of these personal tenets that we've talked about and exactly what I talked about that I learned from Miss Rossi about making sure that I'm a complete human before anything. When I come to the table as an artist, I just believe that education is the key to unlocking your soul and your spirit and making you a better communicator. And especially as an artist, if you decide to become an actor, a singer, a dancer, a visual art, like you just never stop learning. You're always evolving, always growing. So forever the student. That's sort of my takeaway there. But yeah, I mean, you guys. Family affair. Family affair. Miss Rossi's a legend. So you guys got to get in on some of this legendary magic. And man, when she opens her mouth, you know why, right? What a great opportunity to hear an educator who has just retired from 30-plus years of a successful teaching career talk to one of the brightest stars on the Broadway stage. How else can we take this out other than with my favorite game, yes. Three Things. And I think we should be clear that, okay, this is a podcast and we could reveal a few things. Editing does happen in a podcast. We, we we record things. Sometimes we record them more than once. I think that's okay to say. Let's be clear. 
This is unplanned, this moment here. This is for realsies. I do not know what you're about to ask me. There's a very good chance you don't know what you're about to ask me, and I definitely don't know what I'm going to say. So just in case there were there were naysayers, for reals, go ahead, bring it. Recorded improv in action. Okay, Alec, give me three sports that don't exist, but you wish did. Door closing. Whoever can get the loudest slamming door clearly wins. One. Shoe shopping. It, it, shoe shopping is the bane of my existence, and I feel like if I could practice and get better at it and win the shoe shopping Olympics, I would just be a generally a, a happier person. Two. And the third sport that I definitely wish could exist but doesn't yet exist is the next thing that I'm going to say. It's digging. If we can we can do a digging sport, a lot of uh, uh, you got to get a bulk up. You got to bulk up. You got to and you could you could work out by start with cereal. Just see how many Fruit Loops you can get. Move into the heavier stuff, the heavier dirt. And then finally, we go to the cemetery for the finals. Three things. You know, it's funny. You mentioned three things because I actually have a a thing that I'd like to ask you about that I'm going to look for three things from as well. Um, What are some ways, what are three ways, in fact, that people could interact with this show if they wanted to? What an excellent question. First, if you have questions, comments, if you know someone who would make a great guest on our show, please write to us at contact at arteducatorspodcast.com. One, one. I only have one thing to say and I always forget it. One thing. Only one thing. Second, you can use our handy dandy interview guide posted on our website to talk to your own mentor about the ways they've changed your life through the arts. Two. And... When you do talk to your mentor, you can send us your favorite two-minute clip of your interview, and we will do our best to include it in the show. To learn more about this and other ways to get involved, go to artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Three things. Onward together. Arts Educators Save the World is hosted by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and produced and co-hosted by me, Alec Lev. Our executive producer is Doug Matica, and our audio producer is Justin Asher. We are also executive produced by the fantastic group at Story Pirate Studios, Lee Overtree, Benjamin Salka, and Amy Fiore. Original music is by Dan Lipton, and our artwork is by Lyra Evans. Check out our website, designed by Cole Locasio, at www.artseducatorspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Arts Educators. Yes, somehow that wasn't taken yet. And on Instagram at Arts Educators Podcast. Write to us with your questions and comments at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. And wherever you're listening, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps the show. We are proud to be sponsored in part by the Wallace Foundation, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the Gibb Faculty Fellowship. Arts Educators Save the World was created by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and Alec Lett. If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.